Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Jody Vance in for Roy once more on the Roy Green Show podcast. Today, public servants using their paid time off to the tune of $440 million. Edmonton West MP Kelly McCauley joins us on that. A double feature on the We Charity scandal, conflicts of interest, and profit or not-for-profit arms. Justin Ling, freelance journalist, and Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, have more. And our friend Ari Goldkind, Toronto-based criminal lawyer, about the rift between the public and the RCMP, or policing in general. It's all coming up on the Roy Green Show podcast. I got to talk about uh, cash in the time of COVID-19. Some public servants have been able to find a way to stay at full or close to full salary in this pandemic. Are you familiar with code 699? Yeah, I wasn't either. But this is a really interesting story. MP Kelly McCauley is very familiar with this. The member for Edmonton West uh, requesting that we find out exactly what's gone on and how much this is costing taxpayers. Uh, Kelly McCauley joins us on the line. Hello there. Hi there. Good afternoon. Can you explain to me and our listener what code 699 is? Uh, certainly it's uh, a treasury board code. So the kind of the bank and the employer of the government has a special filing code for public servants who miss work so it doesn't show on the regular payroll it goes on the kind of a side coding for a different payroll. budget um it'll it'll be in their departmental budget but it just shows in a different area it's a different tracking area and oh, it's yeah. for um public servants who are either ill are caring for family members cannot work to do technology issues or have work limitations such as you know, there's no work to do. It gets billed to this code. So during a so, pandemic, I mean, there are many reasons that, that one might take leave. Uh, and certainly if there was an option to take leave 699, many Canadians would have taken that option. But so many people were sent home, told to stay home, and then subsequently laid off, applied for uh, employment insurance, and were shifted from employment insurance to the CERB. Um, avoiding that would have been... Uh, extraordinary for many Canadians. So can you walk us through sort well, of, it, it, I, yeah, I the parlamentary budget Sorry, report? No, no, go. I'm ready for, yeah. I'm ready for I the answer. It's say, a very long question. <laughs> yeah, I imagine uh, most in the public or the private sector would have wished they had uh, such an option to go to. And it's one of the things the parliamentary budget officer, the PBO, um, stated in its conclusion, they weren't able to find such a leave policy anywhere in the private sector. And it is uh, quite a generous package. And what I find um, interesting about this is a couple of things. One, Treasury Board, when we first asked about this about a month ago, um, hemmed and hawed and didn't wish to provide the information. We tried to pass a motion in our committee forcing them to provide the information, and the Liberals actually blocked a full report. But then Treasury Board came out and supplied us with um, numbers significantly significantly below what um, the actual numbers were. They provided $439 million of costs when it's up until the end of May, when it's actually uh, $623 million um, costs. So they've, 
tried to block us from finding it. Then they misled us. And now we're at um, this report that shows large amount put aside. But one of the other interesting things is if you're actually sick, the, the public servants have a very generous um, annual sick leave. that's 15 paid days a year. If you're sick while well, on COVID, you don't actually have to tap your sick leave. It so that's the piece that really peaked for me, to be honest with you. That's the part that really peaked for me. Because, I mean, it's not it's not a huge newsflash that um, being a, a public servant working for the government uh, it comes with great benefit and job security and and usually a fairly solid salary. Um, but here, where, where with regard to COVID-19 and having to quarantine, not being able to access, you know, technologies, those things that you've sort of stated as part of requesting this 699 leave, the part where it says there's no stated requirement that the employee must exhaust other forms of paid leave, sick, family, vacation, or personal before taking 699. That to me is is like extra. It's too much. Yeah. Well, and, and I agree, you know, there has to be a fairness. There's a lot, as you can imagine, disruption in the economy, a lot of lives being ruined, a lot of restaurants, hotels, retail, small businesses wiped out, but they're still expected to pay up for this added benefit. Yeah. It's it's an issue of fairness. And we look at, even in Quebec, they will provide payment for public servants if they can't find daycare, only up until um, daycares open in June 22nd. And in other provinces, it's, you know, we'll cover your pay but it has to come out of your, you know, your accrued sick leave. If you run mm-hmm. out of sick leave, then you can tap into future sick leave. Whereas federally, it's it doesn't come out of your sick leave. And you don't even touch I that. PB, yeah, I was chatting with the PBO earlier. I think it's uh, we have one and a half million accrued uh, sick days for the public servants. So there's a lot of sick leave accrued, about six billion dollars worth that in the regular world people are being asked to tap before they run into or before they access any special leave we're not doing that with the public service and that just compounds the the treasury board trying to hide this information from us and then misleading committee and i think purposely putting out um, considerably lower numbers than what the actual numbers turned out to be so in the interest of fair and balanced, in the next segment, we're going to actually have the National Pre- President of the Public Service Alliance of Canada on. What do you think he will tell us? I think Mr. Elward, uh, and I don't see eye to eye on this, I think he's going to say probably the exact opposite, but the numbers are quite low. And that's, you know, that's fair for him to say he represents them, so he has to say this. But from our point so- of view, it's, it's, a, it's a fairness thing for Canadians in the private sector who don't have access to such things, but also the government possibly purposely providing parliamentarians with misleading numbers that forces us to go to the PBO to get the truth. And, and that's the, the piece of this that really would would bother me as the person sitting in between the two of you that are obviously going to have opposite points of view, that one saying an inflated number over what we are, are are finding in the report and the other saying it's probably much lower. For me, it's like, well, if the parliamentary budget officer has put this report together, I want that to be accurate. Oh, 100%. Like, tell us what it is, 
Right. And what what Treasury Board told us was 439 million. What the PBO has been able to find is 623 million. That's only up until the end of May, and that's without benefits. So you add in 30% benefit. But the PBO's commentary, and when you look at the breakdown, the CRA, God love them, did a phenomenal job of actually tracking. The PBO believes that even their $623 million total is very largely underreported. So it's probably a lot, lot larger total. So the PBO, when they figure with the underreporting, you know, it could be up with benefits up to close to a billion dollars. And Treasury Board came to committee and said it was $439 million. That is a large gap. Like, that's not a rounding error. That is an no. extremely large gap. And Treasury Board purposely misled by, you know, not adding in 30% of the public service. Their, Creative their accounting all, shouldn't be allowed in government. It should not. <laughs> Creative, and, it just should not be. And whether you want to pay public services, sit at home, or have them draw down your sick days or not, that's fine. That's a policy issue. Don't mislead Canadians. Don't mislead parliamentarians. Yeah, share the cost for what it is. Yep. And Canadians have to pay for this, and they have a right to know what they're paying for. We're with Kelly McCauley, who's the MP for Edmonton West. What first sparked you to uh, dive into all of this? Well, we've we've had... uh, an ongoing battle, I guess, with uh, the Treasury Board over transparency for a long time now. And this is just part of it. We heard rumblings about the 699, so we just asked them about it. And the fact they um, hemmed and hawed about it and weren't forthright with us led us to uh, head to the uh, PBO instead to look for uh, look for answers. It's curious when you get dodged uh, when when going in search of fact. We very much appreciate you taking the time to sort of set it up for us here, and I'm I'm certain you'll be uh, tuning into our next segment as well. Uh, Kelly McCauley, MP for Edmonton West. Well, thanks for your time, and I'll, I'll listen to Mr. Elward with interest. Collectively, Canadians have learned an awful lot about the We Charity in recent weeks, but with each passing day, it seems we have a wait. There's more. So to help us get the full view here of what we actually is, let's connect now with the freelance investigative journalist, Justin Ling, who has been tirelessly covering this story. Most recently, a piece at vice.com that I urge everybody to read. It is epic. Uh, Justin, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you sort of unpack this for Canadians who maybe have been sort of just skipping along the surface with the wee scandal? The what what has unfolded to this point, and what have we learned about this charity? Right. So you know there have been allegations for some years that the, the wee charity, um, you know, maybe is overstating the impact it's had on its development projects in Sub-Saharan Africa and, and, and South America. There have been some allegations that. Um, they've not been particularly good to their staff. That that the you know their staff are overworked and underpaid. You know these allegations have come out uh, mostly through Canada Land, um, and you know that was about a year ago. And not long after that, we threatened uh, a libel lawsuit against them in Manitoba. So you know there's there's been sort of a turn of stories about um, you know issues with the We organization going back for pretty, at least a year. It actually goes back much farther than that, but most recently, like last year. Um, and then of course. 
just in the last few months, um, the federal government comes out and announces that um, they're going to award or a, a contract to We Charity to administer a federal student grant program. Um, the whole thing's worth nearly a billion dollars. We would see between twenty and forty million dollars of that of that grant just to administer these these awards to youth who spend their time volunteering. Now, you know, pretty quickly that was kind of raised as suspicious. It was a sole sourced contract, meaning there was no competition, um, and there was questions over why go with we. There's a whole bunch of other volunteer organizations. Of course, the federal government is capable of giving out grants all on its own. Um, yeah. Kind of an open question of why go with we. Then, of course, it comes out that um, you know we knew that there was close ties between Trudeau himself and the we organization. But then it comes out that his mother, brother, um, and other folks around him have been getting paid speaking fees for speaking at uh, We Day events around the country and actually around the world, um, which is unusual because a lot of people weren't being paid for those speaking events. So it, mm-hmm. it kind of opened up this Pandora's box of, you know, all of these close ties, you know, sole source contracts, generous grants, um, that it's really started swirling around both the Liberal Party and uh, the WE organization. And then further, with this $41,000 being repaid from uh, Bill Morneau, the finance minister, saying, oh, yeah, no, I thought that was paid already. Yeah, and so this came out of of the committee hearing just last week. Bill Morneau, before he was even asked any questions, said, you know, hey, listen, I was was given a trip by we down to both Kenya and Ecuador. Um, I paid my own way. I paid my own airfare, paid my own food and all that. But uh, we had covered the cost uh, of uh, the accommodations at these like kind of quite nice camps in, in both those countries that are owned by we. Um, Bill Morneau basically said, you know, I didn't, I did, I, I should have paid for them. I, I didn't. I cut them a check just today to to, to you know indemnify them, uh, and we're all square now. You know, I, I I think that may get him in trouble with the ethics commissioner. Accepting sponsored travel in any form is generally not allowed. Um, but you know, I think it speaks. To two things. I mean, one, that the finance minister is so absurdly rich that he doesn't know when um, he's not been charged $40,000. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, I think more importantly that he's so chummy with this organization, as with everyone in government, that they didn't really think twice about being offered a, um, you know, a kind of a lush getaway to go view their programs um, you know, in, in Ecuador and Kenya. And, and to be clear, that's why he was there. He was there to go watch them build schools and whatnot. But it was, it was quite a nice getaway in the end. And I think it speaks to just how close the whole liberal government uh, has been with the WE organization. We're with Justin Ling, a freelance journalist who's penned a piece for Vice.com on this subject matter. And as I was digging through your piece, I found it fascinating when you got into the nuts and bolts and and really looked at how at the center of this scandal I'm quoting you now is the story of we a unique charitable corporate hybrid and its symbiotic relationship with the prime minister there's a lot to unpack here yeah so I was speaking to a forensic accountant for the story and one thing she told me um, her name's Kate Banau. She's actually now been sort of threatened by we with the kind of the prospect of maybe a libel suit um, for, for saying what they, they conclude inaccurate statements about their organization. But what Kate told me was, um, you know, when you try to understand a charity and she runs an organization that, you know, vets charitable organizations, she said they should be simple. It should be easy to understand. You know, UNICEF, has a, you know, a charitable organization here in Canada. They take money and they go to programming in the global south. It's relatively simple. I've looked through the financials. They're pretty straightforward. We is 
anything but straightforward. They have mm. their main charity. They have uh, at least two other charitable foundations that seem to be holding companies for real estate here in Canada. Um, they have a for-profit arm uh, that also is actually owned by a holding company and has five other subsidiaries. And that's just in Canada. In, in the U.S., there's you know five or six other charities, for-profit companies, and all these other things. Trying to find out where the money goes between one and the other and who owns what property, who does what program, who's responsible for what, who's the bo- on the board of this one. It's, it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. I spent so much time just, just you know, combing through years and years of financial statements, some of which weren't even released publicly by we. It's absolutely unbelievable. You know, there's no way any organization should make their financial accounting this opaque. If you want to know what an organization is doing, you should be able to go see pretty clearly, and that's not possible by and large for we. The cash flow crunch in your column is is an unbelievable read. I wish we had time to go through it forensically here on the radio, but I'm going to uh, ask our listener to go to vice.com and and have a an in, in-depth read because depending on at what point you check their financials, they're either an exorbitantly wealthy charity or deeply deeply in the red. Yeah, I mean, and their and their and their yeah. year-end changes exponentially. Oh, again, you know, when I'm saying they should, things should be simple, one of the most difficult things that we has done is they keep changing their financial year. You know, this is something businesses yeah. would not get away with. If they were to do it, their, their shareholders would go nuts. Um, we used to use the fiscal year, went to a calendar year, and now they're using the school year. So they, they report their financials on, on August 31st. And it makes it really hard to compare one year to the next because some years are 12 months, some years are eight months. And, and, and actually... The last two years, one of which is only eight months, one of which is 12 months, they've been showing deficits, pretty sizable deficits. Um, they say the reason they're showing deficits is because they changed their fiscal year, which you know really starts bending your brain a little bit. Um, but actually, they got in trouble with their banks. Um, they, they actually ran afoul of the conditions of some of their loans, which, again, is weird that they need to take out loans, considering they, they tended to have a really good cash flow. And secondly, yeah. they actually ran afoul of their mortgages. They were gifted real estate by some of their big donors, but with the condition they maintain a positive enough cash flow to cover the mortgage payments. They didn't do that, and they, got in tr- they had to get a waiver from the banks so they, so they wouldn't kind of default on those loans. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on here, and it would be really nice if they were a little more transparent with their donors and with the public, but that's just not how they operate. They, they engage in this sort of media tactic that is confrontational and difficult and opaque, and they're a really hard organization to cover. I've really never seen anything like it. Nor have I, and it, interestingly enough, brings us all the way to circle back with how is it that our, our prime minister thought it a great idea or didn't recuse himself from the conversation at least, but how did our government at the highest level not do the due diligence on everything you just explained before handing that sole source contract of almost a billion dollars to, to the WE charity? Well, so here's the problem is that WE is really, really good at uh, winning over corporate partners. And I don't want to make them sound totally nefarious. They are a charity. No. They do charitable work. They do good work in Africa, in South America, and Asia. There's no doubt about that. But part of their effectiveness is going to be corporations and saying, if you give us $2 million, $3 million, you're going to get branding in our in-school curriculum pro- programs. You're going to get yeah. branding in our big kind of you know, joyous We Day celebrations. 
You're going to get branding on our international development programs, and you can pick, you can dictate to us what you want to put, well, what you want us to teach in schools, what you want our We Days to be about. You know, your executives can come grace the stage at We Day. Like, you know, all state, all state insurance executives get on stage and address the We Day, you know, crowd. It's really bizarre, but that's what they're so effective at. They go to their donors and say, you give us this money, you're going to look cool, you're going to look engaged, you're going to look socially responsible and the youth mm-hmm. are going to love you. And that's a really powerful sell to the Liberal it Party of Canada, which yeah. relies on the youth vote to keep winning elections. I think it's what led the Liberal Party to just not think twice about some of these things because they're so uh, in the pocket or so in favor or so aligned, I think, philosophically with the WE organization. And to add to that, I have a 12-year-old. He knows all about we day. He also knows within schools that you have to wait your turn to be old enough to attend. And then you have to do good in the community in order to earn your free ticket to attend. It is very much a, a, an aligned, uh, at first blush, it would be very much aligned with the program that was announced that now famous day when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau stepped before Rideau Cottage and announced he really wanted to help the youth in Canada. And this is how it was going to happen. And somewhere lost in all of this, are those youth who are still looking for that summer job or that way to save up their money for their future education. That's the downside and and really the drag in all this, if I can quote the kids, Justin. So it's really important, I think, your the works that you're doing right now, as heady as it feels, I certainly appreciate all of your hard work and you taking some time out of your Sunday to join us here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That is Justin Ling. You got to read the column at vice.com. And as Justin mentioned, Canada Land, Jesse Brown, and what they've broken over the last year with regard to the inner workings and behind the scenes of the We Charity. We're going to continue on with talking about the We Charity scandal and how it snowballed from questions of conflict of interest by Justin Trudeau, whose family members made lucrative speaking fees at WE events, to questions of conflict of interest from Finance Minister Bill Morneau, whose family benefited from $41,000 worth of WE-sponsored travel. And now it turns out that the uh, contract at the center of the scandal for WE to run a Canada Student Service Grant didn't even go to the WE charity at all. It went to WE's real estate holding. There's a lot going on here and we need to continue the conversation about it as we learn more almost by the hour. So we're bringing in the nonpartisan group that you've likely heard of here, Democracy Watch, all about holding governments and big business to account to all Canadians. The uh, the National Citizen Advocacy Group, very much with a full plate at the moment with the We Charity scandal really literally blooming by the day. Glad to welcome the co-founder of Democracy Watch, Duff Conacher, to the show. Hello there. Hi, Duff. Hi. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So here we are in this ever-blooming scandal that just continues. I mean, it seems like every day there's another layer to this. When last you and I spoke, you had mentioned that Democracy Watch was asking for answers and for some uh, some semblance of consequence here. Uh, where are we at with regard to uh, what you've learned thus far on this WE file, I guess? Well, the Prime Minister Trudeau and Finance Minister Bill Morneau clearly violated the federal ethics law by sitting at the cabinet table for the final approval of the uh, sole source contract for up to $43.5 million to uh, WE Charity. Um, The big questions still remain. 
did the Prime Minister or anyone on his behalf, uh, or the Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, or anyone on his behalf, intervene in any way in the process that they claim uh, the public service on its own came up with the idea of handing the sole source funding of almost $44 million to we charity. Did they try to influence it in any way, or did anyone acting on their behalf try to influence it? And that needs to be investigated by the uh, RCMP and the Auditor General and the Ethics Commissioner. And really, we need the paper trail here, right? Not just the paper trail, uh, but phone logs as well, and uh, right. everything electronic. Uh, anything, uh, any uh, communications at all between anyone in the public service, anyone in any minister's office or the prime minister's office, and we charity. And we likely will not have recordings of phone calls or or Zoom uh, online, Skype, or FaceTime calls, but we need to know who called whom when. And we need the, the entire document dump from the government uh, and from We Charity. And if the investigators don't get that, then everyone should quite rightly uh, and justifiably assume that the government is trying to hide wrongdoing. And if the investigators don't insist on that full communications record, then they're participating in a cover-up because that's the only way we'll get close to the truth. Um, Because we won't likely have recordings of phone calls, we may not ever know the entire truth as to how this uh, whole thing came about. But it's looking very bad for both Morneau and Trudeau, because we know that their staff did intervene in the whole process uh, from the, the very beginning. And how could they intervene without influencing it is the big question. And I, I don't think see how it's plausible for them to be intervening and taking part in discussions and not be influencing that process in favor of We Charity. If it is found that there was intervention there, inappropriate intervention in sort of guiding this uh, sole source contract, what would the consequences be? What should they be? Well, uh, as I said uh, Morneau and Trudeau have have uh, already violated the law by their admission that they were at the final, final cabinet approval meeting for the contract. Their staff are acting on their behalf, so I think that it's also clear they violated the law by participating in the process. Having their, They may not have themselves, but the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, it's been confirmed by the Prime Minister's office, did participate in the this discussions. And the finance minister, Morneau, confirmed that his officials and his staff were involved in the discussions as well. Well, they're there on the behalf of the minister and the prime minister, and so they're participating in the decision-making process, and that's another violation. If they tried to influence the process while participating in it, then that's another violation. These are different Mm -hmm. sections of the federal ethics law known as the Conflict of Interest Act that are there to prevent trying to influence a decision Uh, and also participating in the decision-making process, let alone making a decision when you have a conflict of interest. So it just adds to the multiple violations. It also raises more directly a question of whether they have uh, committed a breach of trust, a violation of the criminal code, because rigging a contract process in favor of one of your family's favorite charities uh, is... uh, more than just an ethics violation. I think it really ser- raises the serious issue of a breach of trust. 
So over to the ex- ethics commission is step one and then deeper possibly into uh, the RCMP sort of investigation at step two. Duff, as always, time goes by too quickly when I, I have an opportunity to speak with you. Thank you very much for keeping this uh, at the fore. Yes, and I'll keep you updated as we hear back from the ethics commissioner and RCMP about our complaints. Please do. A little bit of an RCMP roundup in the news. Are police being held responsible enough for their actions or inactions. The response to the Nova Scotia shootings will not be publicly investigated and a video of out and out police brutality has now gone viral. So what to do with the RCMP? What is happening here in Canada? It's easy to cast stones south of the border when we're watching the unrest happening there, but let's keep it focused here in Canada as we connect with good friend of the show, Toronto-based criminal lawyer Ari Goldkind is with us. Ari, thanks for doing this. Great to be on with you as always. Let's start with that press conference held on Thursday. Uh, the federal government in Nova Scotia announcing a joint independent review into the mass shooting in April that left 22 people dead and many more people grieving. So many questions unanswered there. Well, that's true. And the problem is, is that, you know, when the public loses trust, and this is the bigger point of it, whether it's Nova Scotia, whether it's anywhere else where the public loses trust and feels like everything is done behind closed doors, that threatens the very institutions, which many Canadians point down south of the border, where we're always talking about Trump and the Trump obsession with derailing institutions and making institutions not matter. So as somebody who's been very, very critical of the RCMP for many years on many issues, my view is they've got to start thinking through in a much more smart cogent public relations strategy that they're no longer viewed as the Mounties or Mickey Mouse and start to be looked at as an organization that isn't at all close to being something that the public feels, let's just say, is uh, not worthy of respect. It is is quite a... um a jolt to many of a certain, I don't know, a certain vintage perhaps, where it used to, you know, move us to a place of, of such significant pride and, and, and sort of that wearing of the maple leaf when we, when we go global, when we travel elsewhere, uh, the, the, the red surge, we're famous for it. The hats, the whole, the, the, the pomp and circumstance of it, if you will. Um, it was, it, the RCMP rose held to such a high regard. And in recent years, there have been so many stories, whether it be issues surrounding sexual harassment within the ranks and the stories that have come out of that, the women who have stepped forward, the, the, uh, the lawsuits that have resulted in huge payouts and so much of that cover up. And now we move to where we are currently. And there are so many stories about this Nova Scotia shooting, the, the, identical look-alike RCMP car that is involved in it? Was there money that changed hands somewhere? There were these these skip-along stories that we just really need some straight answers uh, from, as citizens, we deserve it. Not even from a media perspective, but as citizens. Well, let me break. There were two or three components to that part of what you said, and I think each one is important, but I think there's a danger in lumping them together. And what do I mean by that? I think there's a very different connotation to the public where there's sexual harassment payouts and we're living in the day and age of me too and time's up and weinstein i'm not so sure that and i'm just giving my thought on this that's not the the route 
to me, of what makes a lot of Canadians question the RCMP. I, I think a lot of people now look at that as the cost of doing business. We're in the day and age where allegations are good enough to be proof. And I don't think a lot of Canadians, and, and again, I'm quite certain of this in my own mind, lose faith in the RCMP because some people say there's, a, there's sexual harassment there. I think where it comes from is the idea that the RCMP has left themselves holding the bag on a lot of high-profile criminal matters. And I mm. think that's where the attention of the public becomes much more interested, which is, and I use the term Mickey Mouse because I think you understand that a lot of people view this in a Mickey Mouse cartoony, we're the Mounties way, and not, yeah. as, a, and not as a police force worthy of respect. And here's where I'm going to say the second part of this comes in. I think the RCMP have been quite often their own enemy because they're so busy apologizing, they're so busy looking weak-kneed. I think this applies, by the way, to many police services across Canada and North America, which is, and there's, here comes the surprise. I'm a criminal defense lawyer, but here comes the surprise to this. I think police have been unfairly demonized in the last year or two. And the problem is, is that police don't fight back. They take it, they apologize, they issue politically correct statements, I think the ordinary average listener to your show and Roy's show and all of the things that are across Canada on nationwide uh, platforms, I don't think the average Canadian is the view on Twitter. I think the average Canadian sees what's going on in our cities, sees what's going on in Chicago with the number of little children being shot in low-income neighborhoods, the amounts of rioting where things are being thrown at police officers, and police officers have now been rendered feckless, not because of the ordinary average voter or anything democratic, but because of Twitter. And I think this has permeated into the RCMP culture, where every single time I see some press conference from the RCMP, it's always apologetic, it's always sorry, it's, other, it's always mother may I. There is strength in strength, and let's go back to Nova Scotia. These are not terribly complex questions to answer. I raise it with all these stories that I see in the criminal justice system where sometimes people believe, and I don't know why they believe this, that evil isn't amongst us. And it can't always be prevented. It's not the police's fault. It's not government's fault. It's not the churches, the synagogue, the mosque. It's that there's evil. So while I think certain answers should be provided easily to the public, let's you mentioned the RCMP car, right? The one that mm-hmm. looked, exa- it looked exactly like that. If you look at the history and the reporting there, there is actually very little to be concerned about that would have led anybody to ever foreshadow that this man would have done that day. And every time I think of the RCMP being grilled over this, I always think to myself, why are we pointing the finger where it belongs? to this man, to this maniac who, who destroyed all of these lives and the, the heroic officers who were chasing him. I always thought this should have gone out more in a Twitter APB. To me, that's the crux of the story. Why yeah. weren't people notified that this madman was on the loose? But, you know, we right. live in a day and age, and I'll end my answer here, where unfortunately anti-social media and Twitter has become what's picked up upon as mainstream thought, and I just don't think it reflects what the ordinary average Canadian thinks. The temperature surrounding citizens versus law enforcement right now is at an all-time high. I think we can agree on that, yes? 
I don't think there's any dispute about that, but I think whether it reflects reality on the ground or whether it's some ginned up thing on Twitter or anti-social media, I think that's an interesting debate. But there's no doubt that I think the broader public is being told a message about the police in general that I don't think is fair to police and I don't think is fair to their fellow citizens. Don in Edmonton. Don, welcome to The Roy Green Show. Hi, thank you for having me on. Um, I think the RCMP are starting to lose ground in the political, or sorry, I should say public opinion category. But what I think is worse right now is actually, like, you take Edmonton City Police or Calgary Police. Like, 15, 20 years ago, upstanding, nicest people you'd ever meet. You could have a conversation with them. They'd realize you're looking after their interests. They were looking after yours. Now they're just so heavy-handed and just, it's like it's almost out of control. And I can see where the public support for them is dwindling quite, quite rapidly. Um, With the RCMP, it's still not too bad yet, but uh, they really do need to shine their boots and uh, get become more uh, socially friendly. I realize that they have a hard job and it's not an easy job, but they do. But, you know, like I see so many people that when the RCMP were doing something, they would stop and see if they needed hands, like especially out in the rural area. Now they'll just drive by like I do. We just look and drive by. Thanks so much for that, Don. It is a perspective that that comes to the fore, Ari, uh, and not just on social media, but in, in just everyday conversations and certainly in having the discussions around, you know, people being frustrated with racial profiling or being carded in Toronto or they call it street checks in in Vancouver. Um, that that sort of the feeling that the whole Black Lives Matter movement is about, you know, putting a halt to the targeting of black people by law enforcement that definitely started to bubble up in the United States, but has sort of come across the border in in many guests that I have uh, entertained here on, on various talk shows. It, it, it is perhaps something that for me as a privileged white woman, a middle-aged privileged white woman, I don't have that concern when I send my 12-year-old son out the door. I say, look for the, the, the police officer if you're in trouble. Go in search of someone in that uniform to help you if you're in trouble. That's not the case for, you know, our producer, Jumio Gonzola, who uh, penned a, a piece that is an open letter to her two children. Uh, you know, she is a, a black woman with black children and needs to, to explain to them what how different their experience is with law enforcement from her perspective. And I think that's important to acknowledge, at least here. Uh, I will not pretend to speak for somebody else's perspective. I think these are issues that you and I can't cover in 10 minutes. I think they're very, very complex. Uh, I think a lot of people believe a lot of things, um, but I'm not so convinced that uh, the certain movement that you speak of says or speaks for exactly what some say it does. I think if people go to their website it's certainly concerned with things that until I went to that website, I didn't know that that's what it stood for. So I think these are very hot button issues. But if we're going to talk about a hot button issue, one of the problems with the hot button issue is you can't talk about the hot button issue. And if you look yeah. at recent polling out of the states, you look at about two thirds to three quarters of U.S. citizens, if you believe this polling, will not have a conversation where they say what they actually think. Now, how is that good for society? How is that good for policing? How is that good for racialized minorities any more than it is for people who are theoretically in the majority? You look at the city I live in, the GTA, Toronto, you know, white people are now and uh, well on their way to being the minority. 
So a lot of these conversations are very hot button. And if somebody says, see, the way my brain works, Jody, just to make it clear to your listeners, I grew up going to university and high school on the debate team, okay? Yeah. And if somebody yeah. would say something that I totally disagreed with or thought was wrong, I didn't hate their guts or want to destroy them. My inclination was to sit down and find out why they think that way. Is it true? Is it backed up by science and evidence? Or in today's day and age, is it backed up by Twitter, which is a cesspool? So whether you're right, your producer, who I respect and quite frankly have spoken to at length at times, whether your listeners are right or I'm right, these are conversations that I think, especially about policing and the public trust and who serves and protects, If we can't discuss the realities on the ground openly and honestly, this wound will only get more festered. And going back to what I said, where I'm a criminal defense lawyer, but I think this anti-police, they're the enemy rhetoric is so dangerous. I can't imagine another job today where theoretically decent people who got into this, I'm not talking about people who got into this for the wrong reasons. That's an interesting subject, Jody, that I really do read a lot about. Why do certain people get attracted to having a badge and gun in power, and those people shouldn't be within a country mile of a police service. But to the thousands across this country of police officers who are dealing with changing cities, changing demographics, changing attitudes, police, how many other jobs when you kiss your children goodbye in the morning do you now have to think about if I'm arresting somebody for a perfectly good reason, somebody's thrown a kid out of a car like yesterday's carjacking in Toronto, Somebody shot at police. I'm going to end up on cell phone uh, video. And if that accused person takes a swipe at me or punches me or pulls a knife on me, I'm going to become the enemy when I take that person down rather than society asking the question, why all of a sudden is it open season on police officers? These are conversations that should be had. The problem is if you express something that Twitter doesn't like, they want to kill you, destroy you, and end you, rather than going, let's all sit at the table, have dinner together. And by the way, that's not being naive. There was a day where enemies, sworn enemies, who thought the other one was completely wrong, would break bread. And when you break yeah. bread with somebody and don't try and kill them because they disagree with you, I would tell you, Jody, and anybody can call me naive, eight or nine times out of ten, you'll come out of that meeting further ahead then you will when you're anonymous behind your phone on Twitter. Right. Solving problems. Breaking bread helps solve problems. There is no question about that. And I think what you've stated here is very much necessary to infiltrate dinner tables where people sit and just bandy about the anger piece and why we why we are pushing back. Because in, in all of the conversations of trying to move things forward toward uh, a better a better societal, I don't even know, temperature. It's, it's so hot button. You say that, that hot button issue. How do, we, how do we cool the temperature without actually touching the button? We have to touch the button. And we very much did in this conversation, Ari. It, I thank you for being as honest and forthcoming and, and fearless in putting forward your opinions on this. As always, I appreciate you. Thank you. Always great to talk to you, Jordan. That's Ari Goldkind, Toronto-based criminal lawyer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. 
Have a great weekend.